Well, hello. Try it again. Hello. Good morning. Happy Easter. Glad you're all here looking dapper on Easter Sunday. It's a great day of the year to celebrate the resurrected Jesus. I'm going to do something traditional. We're a non-traditional church, generally speaking, but I'm going to do something traditional. So it's a little unorthodox for us, although it's quite orthodox. So I'm going to ask you to do well at this. Don't embarrass me, okay? Do well at this. I'm going to say, he is risen. And you, in the traditional response, are to say, he is risen indeed. Are you ready? You think we can handle that? Three times. All right. Take a deep breath. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. All right. Indeed, he is. God is good. He's alive. He's not dead. Steve and team, thank you so much for putting together such an amazing time of worship. Our band was here rehearsing at 5.30 a.m. this morning. Can we give them a hand? It's a big deal. Well, happy Easter. Welcome to those of you who are visiting. If you're a guest here, I'd invite you to fill out a welcome card. You can do that on your smartphone at any point during the service. Just go to the mill.church on your browser, the mill.church slash welcome, the mill.church slash welcome. We'd love to have a record of your attendance and get to know your family a little better. And you can also fill out a card at the back. This is a little bit of an unusual year for us in that we're calling this the year of 52 stories every week in 2022, with Easter being no exception. We're having a story from one of our regular attenders of God's faithfulness. Would you give a warm Mill Church welcome this morning to Julie Reiner? Good morning, everyone. Happy Resurrection Day. Mine is the story of Jesus' faithfulness to a promise. I'd like to start by saying I'm alive today only by the grace of God and the power of the blood of Jesus and his resurrection. To tell my entire story, it would take much longer than I have here today, so I'm just going to stick to a few points. In 2011, I was diagnosed with blood cancer, acute myeloid leukemia. I did not experience the stages of grief that people talk about, which include denial, anger, bargaining, depression, but went straight to acceptance. Gary and I are nurses, and when we started working at St. Joseph's Hospital many years ago, we worked primarily on the oncology unit, and we knew what we could expect on this journey. And though we were aware of how hard the road would be, I knew I could never suffer the excruciating torture Jesus suffered in my place for my sins. And that put everything in perspective for me. I had read Matthew 21, 21, Jesus had cursed the fig tree, and it immediately withered, and the disciples were amazed. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, what you, you, if you, believe you will receive what you ask for in prayer. Leukemia was my mountain. In that moment, I was filled with an absolute certainty that I was going to be well. I knew it was from the Holy Spirit. Believe and do not doubt. I knew Jesus was in control. And I found another verse from Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. 
for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. It was confirmation of the promise, and I was ready for battle. The first round of chemo was intense, meant to kill the leukemia cells and achieve remission, which I did. I went home after 24 days, earlier than had been expected. Every six weeks, I was back in the hospital for a week of chemotherapy. Each week, my neutrophil would count would drop to zero. Neutrophils are the type of white blood cells that fight infection. So after every treatment, I was at risk for life-threatening infection. After my last treatment, I did develop sepsis, a bacterial infection of the blood. I became sick very quickly with fevers of 103 and more, and my blood pressure dropping to 69 over 35. My doctor said I would be in the hospital a week or longer until my neutrophils recovered. So many people were praying for us. The next day when my doctor came in, I was on the treadmill. He smiled and said that I was not his average patient. The following day, I was just tired home from the hospital. Thank you, Jesus, for healing me so quickly. I was able to go back to work, and I told everyone who would listen how Jesus had healed me. I was sure the leukemia was gone forever and and gave Jesus thanks every day. After 18 months in remission, I was suddenly very sick again with vomiting and fever. We were in the emergency room, and the doctor came in with my lab results and said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but the leukemia is back. My white cell count was 156,000. A normal count is 7 to 10,000. Needless to say, I was stunned. I was much sicker than I was the first time. I was in the ICU for three days with 105 fevers, terrible bone pain, on oxygen, my lungs were full of white blood cells, and a dialysis catheter to fill to filter out the white blood cells so I could start chemo again. Excuse me. I wasn't angry or bitter, but rather sad, wondering what I had done to allow this to come back. Then I read the verses from Jeremiah 29, 11 to 13. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me, And come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Jesus was reminding me of his promise to heal me. The chemo the second time was much harder than the first, and I was in the hospital for 38 days. My bone marrow biopsy had showed I had developed a gene mutation, which meant I would be resistant to treatment and not stay in remission. I needed a bone marrow transplant. We met with a transplant specialist at the UW Hospital in Madison, who happened to be the head of the transplant program, and we were sure God had chosen him for us. I am an only child, so I would need a donor from the bone marrow registry. Our doctor contacted the registry to start an urgent search while I was still in remission. Within weeks, we were informed a donor was found and a perfect match, which is hard to come by. Plans were made for my transplant. We were sure that Jesus had found the perfect donor for me. The preparation for transplant would be intense with more chemo and total body radiation that would wipe out everything. I was informed I would be sicker than I had ever been. For the first time, I was afraid. Then the Holy Spirit reminded me of Jesus' promise, Fear not, for I am with you. I was overwhelmed, and I was never afraid again. During my pre-transplant testing to make sure I could withstand the intense chemo 
and radiation. I had another bone marrow biopsy. When we went back 10 days later, we learned my biopsy showed I had already relapsed after only three months, and the leukemia was back for the third time. But our doctor wanted to proceed. We spent Christmas 2012 in the hospital, but we were giving thanks every day that Jesus was giving me new life. I was discharged after six weeks, and though there were large bumps in the road, I was recovering as expected. But by the end of August of 2013, my liver enzymes were quite elevated from a condition called graft-versus-host disease in which the donor marrow sees something that shouldn't be there and tries to kill it. I started on high doses of steroids to try and keep the marrow in check. That wasn't enough, so an immunosuppressive drug was added to decrease the donor marrow activity. The first week in November, we went to Madison. When our doctor walked in, he wasn't his usual self, and with tears in his eyes, he told us my blood work showed the leukemia was back for the fourth time. The medications intended to prevent liver failure suppressed the donor marrow to a point that allowed the leukemia re to return. He said there was an unapproved drug we could still try. Later, we met with our doctor in Marshfield. He said I had three options, have the chemo and get remission, have the chemo and not get remission and never leave the hospital alive, or to go home and enjoy the last three to four weeks of my life. I answered that that was not an option. He advised me to get my affairs in order as he did not think I would live. But I was not going to forget Jesus' promise and I was not gonna give up. He didn't bring me through all this to let me die. I was going to trust Jesus and his promise. The plan was I would receive five doses of the experimental drug. It was brutal. I had never had effects, that we had on effects unlike anything I had ever had before. The night of the third dose, I experienced a medical emergency where my heart rate was 270 beats per minute. Our room was full of medical people and they were waiting for a drug to come from the pharmacy which had been missing from the emergency cart. I felt the peace that passes all understanding and I was not afraid. Suddenly my heart rate dropped to 170 beats per minute. Everyone was amazed and left. Jesus was showing he was still in control. I still had problems with my heart rate and blood pressure and went back to the intensive care unit for three days. I was near death and word went out to, that if anyone wanted to see me again, they had better come now. I was never able to complete the treatment. A close friend who is an oncology nurse with many years of experience told Gary, you have to face it. No one survives a failed bone marrow transplant. It would take a miracle from God for Julie to live. I kept reminding myself of Jesus' words, fear not, for I am with you. Be strong and courageous, for I am with you wherever you go. Believe and do not doubt. I know the plans I have for you. All I had to do was trust, believe, and not doubt. And Jesus did all the rest. Through this journey, I thought I had given up control to Jesus. But when I was at my weakest, I realized I hadn't. I came to terms that I had no control over anything. I just trusted Jesus and still believed his original promise that I would be made well. It was a long road back, 
but Jesus is forever faithful. He brought me back from certain death and raised me up because of his death and resurrection. He has given me new life twice, both physically and also the promise of eternal life with him in heaven. This is the year of 52 stories, and Jesus is absolutely the hero of my life. Thank you. Well, I want to thank you for joining us this morning, whether you're here in person or at home online. The question I have for you today is, have you ever experienced anything in life that you might consider an immovable object? Maybe it was for Julie Cancer, but what has it been for you? Something that just seems impossible, something that's not good to be a glue closed door on a dream of yours you thought this was where God seemed to be leading you and now it just seems to be gone Uh, maybe it's a relational impasse of some kind where you loved someone and and now you're miles apart maybe it could be a health diagnosis I think we all face immovable objects from time to time in our lives For you, maybe it has been a mountain of debt. Anybody ever been in a place where they've spent more than 50% of their income on their home and then discovered how difficult and unsustainable that decision might be? Maybe others of you had medical bills that came up and absolutely crushed you. Maybe for you, it's an addiction today where there is an immovable object that you thought you could garner control over, but it kept creeping in and biting when you least expected it. Maybe it's a immovable object of grief, and you've lost someone in the last few months or the last year. Maybe you're sitting here this morning wondering, I wonder when life is going to be normal for me again. Maybe you're experiencing an immovable object of anxiety or fear. Um, There's a lot of that these days. Medical professionals tell us it's crept in to younger generations even than it ever has before. It's like everyone's fear level is, uh, you know, shooting up. And it's either COVID or a government that's reaching beyond where it should, or you name it, studies tell us that these anxiety levels are higher than they've ever been. Uh, Maybe it's for you a mountain of loneliness, and maybe it's an immovable object of depression. Maybe you're longing for warmer days and less wind and cold, maybe fewer clouds, maybe more sunshine maybe you're blue and you're in need of seeing the color green I'm not sure where you are but when it comes to moving immovable objects we have a few choices we can do what our kids do which is throw a fit how many of you know it's a little less becoming on us adults to throw fits Have you ever seen a full-blown adult throw a fit in a supermarket or in Fleet Farm? can be quite alarming. Um, Or we can learn 
from our immovable objects, which is what we're going to try to do. I hope we do from today's story. There are three ladies in today's story, and we're going to see how they face an immovable object. Jesus has been crucified. It's Friday afternoon. That's important to know because in the Jewish tradition, Friday evening sundown to Saturday evening sundown was considered the Sabbath. It was a period of rest. You didn't do household projects. You didn't do fixer-uppers. You didn't do DIYs. You didn't work overtime at your job. You stood still and you listened to the Lord and you honored him by being relatively motionless. It was a day of worship. And this happened to be in the middle of Passover. So the idea of mandated rest was even more extreme. These women can't even give Jesus, their friend, for some their family member, a proper burial for fear of working too hard or of being seen as working too hard. So they just kind of take him in and they lay him on a slab of stone and they go away. And this is where we pick up the story in Mark 16 verses 1 through 7. Now it's Saturday, not Friday. And we read this. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So they waited until the end of the Sabbath when they could work again, when they could travel again, when they could be active again without being taboo to those who were observing the Jewish custom around them. This happens to be Mary Salome. So we have three Marys, not two, on this occasion. Kind of reminds me of a few of our elder meetings years ago when we had Dennis Lee, Dennis Wenzel, and Denny Christensen. Now that was confusing. I'm going to tell you what. So here we are with three Marys. And they come to the tomb after having gone shopping for burial spices. And apparently the funeral homes didn't do much of this in their culture, or at least for those who had less and couldn't afford to pay someone to help them. Verse 2, and very early on the first day of the week, so that's Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And along the way, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been already rolled back. It was quite large. And entering the tomb, they saw a man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he, the young man, said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And there you'll see him 
just as he has told you. So what can we learn from this account on Easter Sunday 2022 from that very first Easter morning about facing immovable obstacles in our lives? Here's the first one. When you're facing an immovable object, you enlist a team. You enlist a team. Julie had seemingly unlimited health professionals working to save her life. I would imagine as many family members, church members, praying, interceding. When you face an immovable obstacle, you need a team. You will never get it by yourself. In this verse, we don't find one person. We find three people on their way to move an object. It was too big a job for one person. It was too dangerous a job for one person. It was too emotionally draining a job for one person to rub oils, spices, over the dead body of a friend. John Maxwell said, nothing significant has ever been achieved by an individual acting alone. Look below the surface, you'll find that all seemingly solo acts are really team efforts. So my point to you is that whether it's a mountain of debt or an addiction or loneliness or anxiety or grief or conflict or fear, don't go at it alone. Ecclesiastes teaches us that though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two people together will withstand an ill-willed man, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. There's power in team. So you need a team if you're going to face something immovable. The second thing we learn from these ladies is that you need to make a plan. These ladies purchased burial spices. They scheduled a departure time. This was quite organized. The departure time had to be early in the morning when the sun had risen. Let me tell you something. These women, I think, would have been totally justified if they would have decided to stay home and cry. And not go to the tomb. Their friend had just been murdered. This is someone they love. This is someone they're related to. I would be beside myself. And rather than licking their wounds and thinking about what might have been, what should have been, what could have been, at some point, either on Friday night or on Saturday morning, they made a plan. And I imagine, though there's no account of this to my knowledge, it going a little something like this. One of the Marys saying, ladies, I know this is difficult. I know we're all hurting. I know we never imagined this day would come, that this would happen like this. But time is of the essence. Our dear friend's body is decomposing. Does anybody know a place where we can find burial spices during Passover? And I imagine maybe another Mary saying, well, you know, I know somebody who provided burial spices for my great uncle 
She's a good Jew. She observes the Sabbath. But if we wait until Sabbath is over, until Saturday night, maybe she'll open up her shop or maybe she'll do something just for us. She'll help us. And another Mary, a third Mary may have said, well, will you go get some? Since you know where that lady lives, since she helped your late great uncle. And maybe the first Mary said, okay, well, that detail is taken care of. What time do you think we should leave tomorrow morning? And maybe another one says, well, it's a dangerous path. A lot can happen at night. Why don't we wait until the sun comes up when everything's visible? Where if someone has malicious intent, they will be seen by others and be a little more reticent to act. And maybe we can see our way a little better and find the location more easily. Yeah, that's a good idea, another one says. And maybe the third Mary says something else. Well, where should we meet? So they make a plan. Someone has said that a goal without a plan is called a wish. A goal without a plan is called a wish. So church wishes, I hope you know, don't move objects. Plans move objects. Wishes don't change things. Plans change things. Do you have a plan for the immovable that you're facing? Or are you just hoping that things will improve? So form a team. Make a plan. The third thing these ladies did that I think is instructive to us is they moved on in faith. Because we read it on the way there, they're thinking to themselves, who will move the stone for us? Apparently that was one detail they left out of their plan. Who's going to move the stone once we're there? How many of you would say that's a pretty real problem? That's a big stone. How are we going to push this thing out of the way? Who's going to help us? So most times you've got to start moving before all the problems are solved. You can't wait until you have every little detail figured out before you press the gas pedal. You know, in the Old Testament, there's a a couple of pictures of how God moves. And you may remember this story. Do you remember Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt? And they come to a big, millions of people, scholars tell us. Two and a half, some estimate as many as six million people, Egyptians, exiting Egypt. They had reproduced within Egypt for many, many years. They'd had children, grandchildren. This is a big nation. And they come to something that's very long, something that's very wide, something that's very deep. It is absolutely an immovable object. It's the Red Sea. And they have to cross it to get away from Pharaoh's army, who's livid and encroaching upon their safety, their livelihood, their very existence with his chariots, his horsemen. There's clanging swords in the distance behind them getting louder and louder. And Moses 
looks up before him and the seas part and the ground turns scotch dry. The Bible says that there wasn't even mud there. It's hard to imagine that, let's call it two and a half million people crossing a seabed, taking less mud with them to the other side than my children are bringing into my mudroom in a Wisconsin spring. But that's what happens. It's so dry that they walk across in safety, and God can absolutely do that. The, the Egyptian army comes in after them, thinking they can get across too. What does God do? He lets the walls of the sea collapse and drowns Pharaoh's army. It's awesome when God moves like that. God moved like that in Julie's life. On another occasion, Moses has died. Joshua is now the leader. And they have another river to get across. It's, a, it's such a unique parallel because it's a very similar situation to get into the promised land. And there they all are by the river. It's at flood stage. This is terrible timing. It's over their heads. And God says, hey, I know you've got a couple million people, but just gather together the worship leaders, okay? The band. Just gather together the band. They'll be the ones in skinny jeans, right? With man buns, those guys, okay? Find them, send them into the river, river first, let them get up to their, between their ankles and their waists in water and watch me do the incredible. And God did the incredible. But notice in the first case, nobody got wet. And in the second case, God expected action on the part of his people before he would provide help. Oftentimes, God provides help only after we've taken action. You do what you can do is a simple way to put it and trust God to do what only God can do. Maybe you become so paralyzed with fear that you, although you're desirous to go on a missions trip, have never gone. Maybe you feel like God has asked you to foster a child and you haven't done it. Maybe you've been wanting to say Jesus to Jesus, yes, I want to be a Christ follower, I want to be a Christian for a long time, but because you critiqued and criticized churchgoers for years and years or even decades, you're struggling to make a commitment and take a healthy step for you. But at some point, you have to do something. So let me ask you the question, what is the next step that you know is right in moving your immovable object? You may have a team. You may have a plan. What are you going to do about it? Number four, we anticipate God's help. The women anticipated that God would help them. They looked up, and what did they see when they looked up? Hey, Mary, I wonder who's going to help us by rolling the stone away. Yeah, Mary, that's a great question. Yeah, Marys, I was thinking the same thing. Who's going to help us roll the... And they look up, and the stone's already been rolled away for, for them. 
It's not even over the mouth of the tomb. God had already done what they could not do themselves. And church family, that is what the resurrection is. It's God doing what we could not do ourselves. It's Jesus dying on the cross and cleansing us of our sin. We cannot do these things. And making us right with the Father in heaven, conquering death, moving his own stone away. We all sin. The Bible says we all sin. How many of you have sinned today already? Okay, you want to tell us about that, Cody? Come on up. Entertain us on a Sunday morning. We all sin. Sin distances us from God. There's not a whole lot we can do to fix our sin in ourselves. How many of you are glad that God did for you what you could not do for yourself? He forgave you. He cleansed you. He healed you spiritually. And by the way, God loves it when only he can get credit for moving your stone. Do you remember all the trouble that David got himself into? David was constantly in trouble. Yet it seems like God bailed him out again and again and again. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm 5. Oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and I watch. Other translations say, and I wait expectantly. This is what David's saying. When I have an immovable stone, when I have an impossible circumstance, I go to God in the morning, I bring it to him, and then I wait. But I'm not just patient. Patience is a virtue in and of itself. If you have trained yourself to be a patient person, it's one thing to be patient. It's another thing to be expecting God to do something that you cannot do. David expected God to move. So I would ask you, are you taking your immovable to the Lord? Are you submitting it to him? Are you taking your kids to God? I don't keep adjusting my glasses because it's cool or to look intelligent. I am adjusting my glasses because as hot as Hades up here with these lights shining toward me and my nose is sweating. That's why I keep adjusting my glasses. Have you taken your immovable objects to Jesus? Have you cried out to him in the mornings like David? Why did God move so often in David's life? Because David expected God to move. Are you taking your spouse to God? Are you taking your career to God? Are you taking your health to God? Are you taking your anxiety, your despair, your depression, your fear to God? And are you waiting expectantly for his help? Do you anticipate God moving your stone? Last one. Expect to be surprised. Expect to be surprised by God. You know, Easter is tough for pastors. Think about it. Everybody knows the end of the story. 
Everybody knows Jesus rose from death. So there's only so many ways you can skin a cat, right? And retell the story. But you want to do it with some element of surprise. Well, I think in today's text, there's a few fun elements of, of surprise. Just imagine what it would be like to be one of these Marys. They arrived, the stones already rolled away. I bet that was a surprise. There's no stone there. They see a young man in a white robe sitting inside the tomb. How many of you know that was a surprise? That would scare the bejeebers out of me. Who are you? We came at dawn, so we wouldn't see anybody frightening. Here you are. That was a surprise. And then the man says to them, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is not here. How many of you know that was a surprise? He's not here. You thought he was here. You spent a part of three days preparing for him to be here, but he's not here. Surprise! See, the women anticipated in faith that God would have someone there to roll the stone away for them so that they could have this sensey party with a dead body. Effectively what they were going to do. God says, I'll up you one. The stone will already be rolled away for you. You won't even have to touch a dead body. Jesus will have already walked out of the grave, alive on his own two feet. Keep your receipts on the census supplies. You're going to have an errand or two to run on Monday morning. You're going to have to take stuff back. Church family, God loves to ruin a good funeral. And he loves ruining funerals in people's lives. People who are headed towards death. And God offered them new life. People who are marching towards despair. And God gives them hope. People who are thinking about taking their lives. And God gives them a life they've never dreamt of. God loves turning crucifixions into resurrections. God loves turning a mechanism of death into a symbol of hope. That we adorn ourselves with. God wants to remove your stone. He wants to take away your obstacle. He wants to resurrect your life. Would you bow your heads this morning? Is there anybody here today who would say, I'm not a Christian and I have been being pulled toward Jesus. The Bible says Jesus draws all men unto himself. It does not take a preacher to bring someone to salvation. Jesus does the work in the human heart. Is there anybody here this morning who would just say, I'm not a Christian and I would like to become a Christian. I would like to place my faith in Jesus. I'd like it to be known that I'm a Christ follower. 
I need him to remove the immovable in my life. Would you just look up and acknowledge me by locking eyes this morning? Nobody's looking around. That's you if you'd like to become a Christ follower today. Give you just another moment. Anybody here? Awesome. Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I just ask, Lord, that the saints who are gathered on Resurrection Sunday, this basically means that we have a room full of people who love you, who know you're preparing a home for them, or we have some who are disinterested or uninterested or unsure. I pray that you would bless both individuals this morning, that you would give those of us who know you and love you a wonderful Resurrection Sunday, that we would feel the forgiveness of sin today in our lives, that we would feel the cleanliness of conscience, that we would know that we are pure, white, unashamed, and whole. And Lord, I even pray for those who do not yet know you, that you would continue to draw them with your kindness and lead them to repentance. That you would break whatever barriers, whatever immovable objects of distrust, of doubt that they have erected that's keeping them from you that you would destroy those and extend a hand, an invitation to heaven. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.